Addiction is a family disease. One person may use, but the whole family suffers. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Howdy ho, my fellow shit shows. Today, we are diving deep with Julie and Clay Angles. They are two friends of mine, and they have a company called Roots Collaborative. They're like a one-stop shop for all things family recovery. They do interventions. They do recovery coaching. They do crisis management. They're both sober. They have over 50 years of sobriety uh, between the two of them. They're both adult children, and they both have done a lot of work themselves to heal the unresolved pain of the past. They will share more about it in the interview, but their style, what they're really rooted in is that this is a family system, this is a family disease, and that not just one part of the family needs healing, that everyone in the damn family has their own recovery to do. I was thinking about what my experience would have been like had that been the approach within my family if we had looked at it as a system as a whole instead of just Andrea, the identified patient. So this chat is a longy, so I'm going to keep my part a shorty. But first, let's take care of the normal housekeeping. I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members. Patreon is where I host live support groups twice a week. Join the damn Patreon, just like these fine individuals did. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Kim, Leah, Stephen, Louise, Jocelyn, Vision B, Deborah, Crystal, Danielle, Kate, Jessica, and Kristen. If your name was not listed and your name has not been listed in a prior episodes, that means you need to stop whatever the hell you're doing right now. You need to go to www.patreon.com slash adultchild. And you also need to give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. We just hit 500 reviews on Apple, but we're not stopping, y'all. We're not stopping. I am going to be saying these words to you on my deathbed, Okay. So go give me a damn five-star rating. Yeah, this is my way of telling you that every day I'm loving you so much love because you believed in me through my darkest night. But something better inside of me, you brought me in. Hey, well, it's my life. pleasure to introduce... Julie and Clay Angles, husband and wife, sober man, sober girl, and the faces behind Roots Collaborative, which is basically, I mean, it's kind of like a one-stop shop. You guys got a lot of shit that you're doing there. Interventions, recovery coaching, family intensives, the whole shebang-a-bang. So welcome to the pod. Thank you, Andrea. It's really nice to be here, and we're excited that you invited us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So... Quite a bit to discuss, but first, are you guys both adult children? Yes, I qualify. Both my parents are sober. 
My mom got sober when about a year after I did, which I was 20. So I guess I was 21 when she went to rehab. And then my dad got sober three years ago. Wow. So, yeah. I have the full 360. And so did you, when you were growing up as a kid, was both of their alcoholism, like, was it very present in within the home? I would say more of the behaviors behind um, alcoholism versus the intensive drinking. I mean, they had cocktail hour every night and certainly were not that present, but did they get, you know, shit faced every night? No. You know, sometimes on the weekends they would go to, well, they'd go to parties every weekend, mm -hmm. uh, but we usually had babysitters and weren't necessarily aware of like the condition in which they came home. Um, my mother's alcoholism flourished when my parents separated and she was the one to move out of the house when you were like 15, I was 15. And it was what, like six years later, then she got sober. Um, my dad was always a very controlled drinker and it wasn't until he retired and he and his second wife got divorced and he moved across the country uh, that he started really drinking heavily. I feel like there's like a story in the big book about that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly. You know, it's the only thing insert, like he wasn't lazing by the pool. He was, you know, playing golf and um, highly confused by things like the mail mm -hmm. and, you know, how to do basic <laughs> tasks because we don't have a bunch of women managing his life and he found himself without one. And that was, um, a real eye opener. So I don't know what kind of a program that is, but <laughs> first time when you said he was confused by the mail, I thought you meant M A L E. <laughs> uh -huh. No, 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 the mail. He was like, the "What mail. does one do with all the mail?" Yeah. I'm like, "Um, you open it first. So hopefully. So then, did you know that you were an alcoholic before you realized your mom was an alcoholic? Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents, my both, my grand, my mom's uh, family. Everyone is um, either sober or not alive. So she's the, the, the firstborn of a family of four kids. My, her, um, her brother got sober. Gosh, I must have been like nine or 10 years old and Alcoholics Anonymous. So I understood like what a non-drinking alcoholic was. I didn't know that there was a 12-step program that he attended and he had gone through the same hospital that I did. And also then con consequently my mom, um, my and mom's and my aunt on my dad's side. Do they give a family discount there? Um, no, we have like a wing or something, I think oh, at nice. this point, like placards of if your name is Thorne or Johnson, feel free to come on in. We have a place for you. <laughs> and then I was consequently, I was born in that hospital too. And then born, my, and then born um, again. Yes. Correct. Yeah. You were reborn. Was, we were reborn. One, yeah. One I was acutely aware of, the other one not so much. Um, but equally as painful. Correct. <laughs> For me. <laughs> um, and then my, my mom's youngest sister is sober, and she got sober before I did. And then both of my mother's parents um, died of alcoholic-related al alcoholic deaths. And then um, to hear kind of the family genogram, my grandfather's like great grandfather was called like Big Johnson. 
and he was a nasty alcoholic. I know. Can you believe that? I was like, nice. Um, yeah, so, I know where your mind went with that. I wish they called me Big Johnson. Yeah. Or he sounds like he should be like a NASCAR driver or something. <laughs> yeah. So I, I come, I come upon you know Good my lineage. challenges quite honestly. Yes. You didn't it's, stand a damn chance, just like me. <laughs> and then you, good sir, Clay, you're an adult child, aren't you? I actually uh, am second generation, meaning the trickle down effect. My mom was not a mm-hmm. uh, active alcoholic, but she was an mom, adult child. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, you know, for me, I was experiencing more of the, uh, the confusion, the gaslighting, the, um, you're not seeing what you're seeing. You're not hearing what you're hearing, even though that you have all this like internal angst and turmoil. Uh, so for me, it was played out a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, was, uh, as she likes to put it, a, uh, a, a jolly alcoholic, you know, and, uh, but he, he, you know, drank heavily and imploded a generational old, you know, family business. So like the gamble and, and everything is edited. So I don't have a clear picture, but I do know that when my mom was a little girl, she had, you know, a driver to school and, you know, all very nice, uh, accoutrement to a wealthy lifestyle and by the time my grandfather uh imploded the family business there wasn't a whole lot left how old was she at that point she was a teenager when mm. all that developed and he would go off to the sanitarium uh two or three times a year that's and what they called it instead of yeah. you go dry out he would dry out come back yeah and so um, you know, for me, my, my mother, uh, definitely is an adult child of an alcoholic and, uh, to hear her say that, you know, she really appreciates Al-Anon and it did a lot for her. She went to one meeting <laughs> back in the seventies. <laughs> I'm glad. That, yeah. I'm so glad those people have a place to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I got so much out of that meeting. Yeah. It really, She's like, everyone should go. Yeah. <laughs> Once. Once. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and my father, uh, workaholic, I didn't see a lot of him. Mm -hmm. You know, he he worked in Manhattan and, you know, would be on the train before I woke up and, you know, come home after I was in bed for a lot of my, you know, more formative years. So when you look at the laundry list, what trait has been, has caused you the most pain in sobriety? Well, I would say four just sort of encompasses my entire life. We either become alcoholics, marry them, or both. Hello. Or find another compulsive personality, such as a workaholic, to fill our sick abandonment needs. Mm -hmm. Um, That certainly launched my life. (laughs) I like number eight. We became addicted to excitement. How has that manifested for you? Um, When I was uh, young and in my uh, active addiction, I lived on the edge of everything. I, you know, I started, I I used to say I started out with vandalism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to really push the envelope and buck the system and rage against the machine. And that, you know, I'm talking, I would, I didn't wait until middle school for that. That was definitely like elementary school. Um, number 11, we judge ourselves harshly and have a, a low sense of self-esteem mm-hmm. um, is definitely played out just you know, having a family household that is, you know, control oriented, and we don't, you know, have much dialogue about emotions. And, you know, my father is an excellent dentist, an excellent tennis player, got a full ride to school. You know, my mom suffered from an eating disorder. And so she was always concerned about the way she looked and how skinny she was. And so, you know, the measuring stick is so long, Mm. that you can't possibly measure up. And, you know, my brother also was kind of nasty to me. So Mm -hmm. that's taken a long time for me just to have like a, a, just a sense of who I am outside of anybody else or what I'm accomplishing in life. What about for you, Clay, more so in sobriety? Um, In sobriety? Well, we almost hit somebody today in the car because Clay was speeding. Mm. Okay, so that's still there. Yeah, but they, but they were they were in a car. It wasn't like they were pedestrian. Well, but you were still speeding. <laughs> I would. I was accelerating. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Just> driving. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we confuse love and pity, and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. Uh, I'd say that that could be something that has been a challenge for me in some past relationships. Pity is a strong word. I don't think I would say I'd use the word pity, but I would take an overwhelming sense of responsibility for somebody. And I know that's kind of a a cross-pollination of your list. Um, But I would say, yeah, if I saw somebody that was vulnerable, uh, it would become my responsibility to help them and confuse that with loving them. So I I might've been in a few relationships in recovery that were more of that dynamic Um, and maybe not the best fit for me, but, you know, I got confused with compassion and maybe lust and love and it all got mashed up into, uh, you know, more of a tumultuous experience. Yeah. You know, when I think about that, it's, this was written when in the late, I guess, early eighties, I think that we know more now. I I almost feel like it should be, it's kind of different because I think that it's not necessarily like confusing love and pity. Um, I think that we have people that like activate us, you know, and they like Mm -hmm. activate our like attachment or our trauma or whatever. And so then it, it gets us going, right? It's kind of like trauma bonding in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that that is what's going on, you know, and that's what we confuse as love when it's truly just mm-hmm. like our like trauma getting activated or just unresolved shit getting activated. Um, also why like we don't like why we don't want to be with people who are like emotionally healthy because like that's boring mm-hmm. because of like what we were, you know, taught of, of what love was or, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I think we were just talking about that in one of my groups last night. Um, 
this woman was saying how she's she just got a relationship and she's like i fell really hard for him and i said well what you need to realize is like that's not really true like what you it's not real you know and i think that that that's what we have to realize too it's like these strong emotions aren't really about the person like when we're an untreated adult child you know it's like about our shit getting triggered well i think me my experience is it's not necessarily that it's not real it's it's the intensity the fantasy yes yeah that, that allows us to you know make choices to stay longer mm-hmm. in the relationship even though it's uncomfortable it's sort of uncomfortable comfortably uncomfortable exactly. you know and i mean i had a relationship from my in my 30s that lasted until right before i met clay that i would say is sort of my PhD in myself, <laughs> where I really love this guy. I mean, he's one of the loves of my life. And I think Clay would say that about, you know, our kid's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and it, all of it's real. It's just, were we a great, healthy fit for who we both were and who where we wanted to go? Mm-hmm. And I think with our relationship, you know, I had almost 20 something years of sobriety when I met Clay and he had long-term sobriety as well. And we'd both done work on ourselves and had gone to a lot of, you know, 12 step meetings of different kinds. So the discomfort that I had to experience in being with him was around intimacy. You know, he's an intimate person and is very comfortable with, you know, he had a couple of kids who I now consider my kids and, and my adult child was used to being in on an island where I could control my the four walls of my house and not get criticized or picked on or whatever those feelings were. But I could go out in the world and be me and then come home. Mm-hmm. So then when I moved in with Clay and the kids, it's like my safety of coming home to self-soothe wasn't there anymore, but because I wanted to be with someone and wanted to get married and be part of the family that first like year or so, even though it was uncomfortable, like I could identify it as a good uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And were you we, aware um, that this was going on for her? Um, yeah. I mean, we would talk about it, you know, she was definitely stretching and, um, you know, when she first moved in, she was, you know, concerned about the kids, you know, maybe getting on her laptop or, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. She just didn't, uh, she didn't know how that would, you know, be okay. Uh, she was definitely yeah, more, more, isolated. My own stuff. Yeah, more isolated and didn't have fingertips, you know, poking at everything, <laughs> you know, and then she had, you know, t- 20 fingertips like with sticky stuff on them and you know trying to do stuff and be part of her and help her with her crossword puzzle or just all these sort of things which were uh somewhat you know you got the sense like they were infringing upon her privacy (laughs) even though that she was like sitting on the same sofa or removed herself from the same sofa as we were all sitting and she would go like sit over near the fireplace (laughs) and uh, yeah, definitely you could body language and then her and I would like revisit 
quite often. I think she got some great advice from a good friend of hers and sponsor. Oh, that was, we, that was your, my therapist. Your, the her therapist said like, let, let your partner, me do the parenting and you just be like the ambassador of goodwill. And I think that that piece was extremely helpful for her integration into the house. I know it benefited the kids as well. Um, sometimes Juju would message things to me that I would need to convey to the kids. That, that could be challenging. And, you know, sometimes I'd be like, well, you know, you can foster your own <laughs> relationship with them. I don't necessarily need to bring, you know, some of that into it. But it definitely took like a continuous dialogue and then going, you know, kind of separating and she'd go to her meetings and her peer group and I would go to my meetings and my peer group. So that, uh, that definitely took some conscious movement, but we just went with the flow and, uh, you know, it's worked out so far. The we're kid, still married. We're still married and the kids love her. Uh, How many years have you been yeah. married now? We married 12 in, oh, like on February 27th. And we've been together, I don't know, like 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because with, with the adult child piece, you know, I knew I was alcoholic pretty much since I started drinking. I had no off button mm -hmm. and started having blackouts. Mm-hmm. When my parents, and that was at 12, and when my parents separated and divorced, I was 15 starting my sophomore year of high school. And so that's when the emotional just flames blew up my alcoholism. You know, it's like those two things, be, I became very unpredictable when I would drink. Sometimes I would be so much fun. Other times I'd wind up in the bathroom crying at a party and just inconsolable. Um, by the time I got sober, like there was no question. It's like, I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I'm the one <laughs> my parents and told them I needed to go to treatment. Mm -hmm. So kind of the pattern in my family is you have to ask, you have to put yourself in a situation to get the help you need versus other people providing an intervention for you to get help mm -hmm. sort of like look the other way, assume it's something different. Don't ask, don't tell. And um, yeah, it's just, it's pretty, it can be really intense. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people that ask their parents to send them to treatment. <laughs> no. I mean, I was afraid that my dad was going to yeah. tell me that this was just another excuse for lack of performance and not wanting to mm. show up for life. Yeah. So kind of like a great Santini type thing. And my dad is mild mannered and, you know, rarely does he yell, but the expectations to be excellent and were incredible. You know, and my brother, I mean, we both grew up in the same house and he, you know, my mom moved out. He then became like the good student and the good one. And I became, you know, troubled he went on to go to law school, you know, as a partner in a law firm. I mean, he's had a pretty straight trajectory and a career path and, you know, has the big house and two beautiful kids, a great wife. Um, I have that. You do. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he just took that traditional path. And, you know, I, I sort of isolated on an island, even though I was sober, you know. So I think it's so encouraging 
now you're right. There are so many tools for people to recover at a much different rate mm-hmm. than I feel like I recovered like a freaking turtle. I mean, it's kind of incredible that I'm still on the planet, but there are so many different resources now and podcasts and treatment centers know so much more. And they're treating dual diagnosis right out of the gate. I mean, when we were Mm -hmm. going through treatment, they were like, well, just worry about your alcoholism first. And then we'll talk about your depression or your bipolar. For me, I had an eating disorder. So they're like, well, we're just going to kick that down the road and deal with it later. And then those things bring you down, you know, on your knees and some people don't stay sober through them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what role did you fill like scapegoaty slash lost child when you were a kid? Um, my brother was the scapegoat. I was sort of the one, the emotional one and, you know, got labeled as like the smart one and the one who did really well in school. And then we ended up switching roles. Yeah. Swipping at 15. Swipping. That's a, that's a a combination of swapping and and switching, swipping. I love it. I I was swiping. Swiper, no swiping. (laughs) (laughs) And then what about you, Clay? Um, for me, I definitely embraced uh the black sheep yeah me too yeah <laughs> well i didn't really well i i i was forced upon it and then i fucking embraced the shit out of it <laughs> oh yeah well i would i would agree you know but i was the you know the fourth child um and uh, you know my parents had their challenges my dad stepped out of my mom my parents were separated for six years um until yeah, Clay just, was like, then he came back into the house when Clay was like 11, 11 or 12. And that's when I fucking turned it up. I was like, no, no, sorry, dude. We don't want you here. Um, but, uh, you know, for sure. I, like I said, I, I, I started with adrenaline and vandalism and, you know, all that sort of stuff, uh, thrill seeking and alcohol and drugs just, you know, fueled that. And, you know, leveled up at every stage. You know, I, I was an active drinker and alcoholic and pot smoker. And then as I had more access to, you know, psychedelics and then, you know, narcotics. And I just kept on keeping on smoking cocaine back then. And yeah, it was, uh, I was after oblivion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so before we get into your professional stuff. I do want to mm-hmm. ask what has been, and you guys might have different answers, but um, what sure has we been do. the most <laughs> difficult conversation that you guys have had together or what has been like the most difficult thing you've either had to share about yourself or maybe, um, I don't know, something about the other person? That's an interesting mm. question. Let me pause for a second on that. The most difficult thing to share about something interpersonally, like the greatest secret. Is that what you're asking? However you want to answer it. If it's something that you shared about yourself or just like a difficult conversation that you've had to have about an issue that you've had or something that bothers you about the other person, just something that was like a real challenge. Yeah, I'd say for for me, it's I get I get sideways about finances. I rather bury my head in the sand. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is there's a program called DA, Debtors Anonymous, and 
you know, some folks that participate in that, a lot of them are in other 12 step rooms and I know them from those other rooms and they're like, Oh, you made it in here. This is like their graduate program. Yeah, it's the P- that's what I hear. D yeah. is like the, D- the PhD program. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I'd say, and you know, Julie had an ultimatum with me, like I, either you start to address some of these challenges, um, or I'm not, you know, I'm not going to accept your proposal basically you got to clean some of that shit up because at what point in the relationship uh, was this like a year into it probably like yeah about a year and a half maybe mm-hmm. year 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 and a half mm-hmm. yeah so and it's a constant you know i was I, gonna say we probably had that really that conversation like three different times at intervals right yeah. like clay heals and gets to a point and then then I'm like, okay, keep going. Yeah. You got to keep going. Vigilance. I have, a, I have a challenge with that when it comes to this issue. You know, um, I'd say, yeah, for me, that's the most embarrassing. You know, I don't want to be a grown man with financial challenges. You know, I want to come across as successful and smart and uh, earn my seat at the table. And when it comes to finances, um, it really diminishes me and I get really insecure, you know, because, and of course, am I trying to be as successful as my dad, who was an extremely successful investment banker and had the respect of Wall Street. And they were all articles in the New York Times and everybody knew my dad on the train back to Connecticut, you know, that was a lot to try to live up to. So as a black sheep, I just went the exact opposite direction. But then I also am able to speak about and make it, you know, put on airs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I can do the country club talk. I can, you know, talk about the exquisite places we vacationed. Um, you know, I can do all that. Uh, so yeah, I think it just can get really confusing. Well, and also too, so you, your dad is so successful and then your mom is bringing in all of her shit mm. from, you know, like, so I'm curious, what were the messages about money that you received from her? Oh, well, I, so I grew up in a town, Greenwich, Connecticut, right outside of New York. And um, it you don't talk about money, you know, and this was back in the 70s and 80s and you didn't flaunt your money either in that community. You know, my mom had come from extreme wealth. Well, I know, know, but then they lost it. And it disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. I'm just, she obviously is coming in with some rather heavy, you know, Oh yeah. It's about money. She, and, and it continues, you know, she's still with us and it gets very confusing. (laughs) One time I was at, we were out in the desert and Clay's parent. This is in like Palm Palm Springs or one of those places. And his parents were selling Clay one of their old jeeps. And so it's Clay, his dad, his mom, and me. And they're talking about the deal. Like, what's the down payment? What's the monthly payment? How long? How are we going to know? I was so baffled because they would decide on something and then one of them would be like, no, that's not what was said. It was this mm-hmm. and like totally changed the entire arrangement. And that must've gone on for like a half an hour until I was like, Hey, 
not sure what's going on here, but there's so much lack of clarity that it feels unsafe to even make a car deal. Yeah. You know, but all three of them kind of looked at me as if I was from outer space yeah. because they're, <laughs> they're, used, to they're the, used to it. We're used to the bananas. And then that story continues. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah. We, there was a bank account set up and I was making deposits, but he was telling everybody that I wasn't mm. because he forgot about the account. He didn't even know where to check to see if I had made any of those. So, I mean, that's quintessential um, dysfunction within the household. I grew. So they didn't. They, there didn't need to be active alcoholism for it to be a shit show. Yeah, no kidding. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I think that's probably the point of a lot of what is confusing about being an adult child is mm-hmm. that like in both of our households, there wasn't immense amount of drinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, the drinking was all pretty appropriate, but the, the you know, generational adult child, it's like alive and well. And I think that trauma actually what we experience and some of with some of our clients it's like the snowball effect it grows bigger with each generation that the challenges aren't talked about openly and healed or some help hasn't been given and then it just grows and it gets handed to the next generation who's like i'm really confused i have a great life and mom and dad are married you know we've got money i'm going to a private school like why am i such a freaking mess inside by the time i'm you know 14 15 16 i Mm -hmm. want to kill myself but there's really no reason Mm -hmm. to feel that way and there's so much shame attached to that you know oh yeah and then the parents you know i mean at least my parents where i was kind of like god we're so confused about why julie's (laughs) i mean challenges i mean Mm -hmm. we're all doing so well You know, and that's, I think, the ironic thing for anyone who's listening. If yeah. you're struggling today, wait 20 years and your mom and your dad could be sober and you could be the most sane person in your family. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a kind of uncanny. Yeah, they come to you, you know, or at least that's been both of our experiences, you know, and not only, um, you know, siblings have reached out for support in some of these areas and my sister and you know, specifically like the light bulbs coming on for her, you know, she's experienced different therapy and she's had challenges with her own children needing, you know, to seek treatment for, you know, various uh, psychiatric challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been really nice because we have been down this path with our own daughter, you know, uh, for m- my side of the equation is women in my family have suffered mightily from eating disorders, usually restriction, but also bulimia. And that would, that my mom struggled. Uh, My sister struggled as well. And so, and my sister and I were in treatment in uh, New Canaan, Connecticut at the same time as teenagers. And my parents are like, what? The fuck yeah, yeah, what? These, yeah, We've done everything for them. Birth? What happened to you, kids? Yeah. You know, we've done everything for you. So, and that's confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, you know, 15 and wondering why, you know, I'm at boarding school. And it's like, mm-hmm. do I go see the Grateful Dead playing Hartford? Because we're making silk screen t-shirts, or do I jump out of this window? Mm-hmm. I mean, I really had that experience, you know, at boarding school, you know, it was a fifth floor in Cluett Hall. 
And that's where we had our little silk screen shop set <laughs> up. And I really did. I was like, ah, I think I'm going to go to the show. But it really was like, yeah, like, oh, the window will be there for me when I come back. Yeah, it's not yeah, going yeah. it's, it's still, still here. an option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. And and a friend of mine, um, you know, walked in front of a bus a few weeks later down on the highway in between our main campus and the field, you know, where we played sports. And I, what that told me and tells me today is I was not alone. You know, and he came from a, I won't use the family name, but it is a nationally known family, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I'm sure his parents are like, we've done everything for him. We put him in a great boarding school, great ski trips, you know, all of it. And, uh, you know, summers on Nantucket, just beautiful experiences. Yes, but they don't, that's not going to make it okay. So. I'll have to tell you about the boarding school that I got sent to when we go out to dinner. <laughs> Mine was a character <laughs> building school. <laughs> oh, I've done I've done that too. Emotional yeah. growth program. Yeah, yeah. Where was it? I I, I it, was, it was in Stockbridge, Ma- Stockbridge, Massachusetts. It was called Desisto, and I think it ended up on sixty minutes for being a really Probably. fucked up place. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, the place yeah, that I went there like high school. Survivor. Oh yeah, you know Hyde. <laughs> yeah, of course. In Maine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was back then. The Hyde School was around for quite some time. They DeSisto. have another one in Woodstock, Connecticut, as well. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, I've had friends that yeah got shipped off just as I did. You know, when you start crashing cars at fifteen and running from the cops, and you know, parents are freak out and they're like, "Oh, maybe we need to ship them off." Um, so yeah, I had some of those experiences. There's places in California that, you know, Utah has quite a few of those schools. Um, yeah, I am familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start Roots Collaborative and what was the vision behind it? Well, interestingly enough, we started Roots Collaborative in 2008. Mm-hmm. I wanna mm-hmm. say that we filed for a DBA we got the URL and the vision at that time was a treatment program that helped um, adolescents recover. Mm -hmm. And with a strong, that was Clay's dream is Mm -hmm. to have that kind of um, a facility. Mm -hmm. And so he did a ton of work on it, uh, looked at places. We were living in Los Angeles at the time, looked at a lot of real estate in like Topanga Canyon where it seemed the easiest in mm-hmm. terms of opening a place like that, especially when you're taking, you know, you become a, a responsible for teenagers if they're staying with you versus like adults, it's a different deal. Mm-hmm. And ended up um, tabling that for a couple of different reasons. But I think when, you know, a, a big piece of that was we were also raising kids and mm-hmm. I was, um, you know, leading a marketing agency, Clay worked there. Uh, Then we had a a tech startup that was around, you know, helping people dream big and set goals to achieve their dreams. Mm -hmm. So Clay and I worked on that together. And during that period of time, our daughter started having challenges with an eating disorder. And it started out more 
what you would imagine a 12 year old girl would, would feel like uncomfortable in her skin. And she started to get breasts earlier than other girls. And she got her period and Clay and um, Courtney's mom, Kelly sat down with her and had some conversations about, you know, if you feel a certain way, uh, you know, taking something because she had taken some natural diet pills, isn't going to change the way that you feel. Mm. If you want to have a different experience of your body, let's talk about, you know, nutrition and what kind of movement you would want to have. But is that even something that needs to be looked at? Mm -hmm. Because you look great. Mm -hmm. And so we gave her a lot of resources over the coming years that were appropriate to where she was. And I think the real aha moment well Well, just specifically you know just for the audience resources meaning like you know we plugged her in with a therapist that specialized with adolescent um adolescents struggling with you know a a budding eating disorder then a group and then an after-school program so we kept meeting her where she was with what we believed would support her in a in a much healthier journey uh and so we asked our community of 12 step folks, uh, therapists in the field. So we just kept on reaching out. And I think too, one of the challenges when you are parents who are in recovery and is to not pathologize your child's early behavior, whether it's experimenting with drinking or drugs or an eating disorder, it's like some of that is normative. Mm -hmm. And even though you're like, I see some of the characteristics in my kid as I see in myself, it's like we didn't want to just put her in treatment at 12 for having, you know, a a, a not the best body image. Mm -hmm. So was she she open to that stuff, like to going to therapy and going to the groups? Or was that something she resisted? No, no, she's, you know, pretty open to it. I mean, we got her um, a coach at one point. Um, We ended up not loving that experience only because we started to see that her challenges were a little deeper than like mind over matter. Mm -hmm. And I think it was at that point, starting in her senior, you know, her, her summer leading into her senior year, she got a job that she loved and she just started to get a little thinner and then a little thinner. And then by the time it was like October of her senior year. Was that senior year? Uh-huh. Hmm. She looked, she started to be concerningly thin. And so at that point, we sat down with her and said, you know, this we think that you need help and we're not the ones to provide it. We've done as much as we can do. So she went into a, um, an after-school IOP program for an eating disorder. And then then it was from noon until eight, then it was all day, then, you know, still, she was having a very difficult time uh, adhering, because the her illness was, you know, in charge. And so then they recommended she go into a treatment center, mm-hmm. she went there, was still refusing to eat. So then she went into the psych unit at UCLA. Thus began... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she went, her target weight at five, seven was 84 pounds. Yeah. That was her target weight that she, you know, relayed to us. And it's pretty, I mean, I, you know, full disclosure, like I, I have an eating disorder. And at that time when Clay and I were doing our tech 
startup, which is really, um, you know, stressful for me and exciting, but I definitely was back into restriction and bulimia. Mm-hmm. And that was a big coping tool that I had at that point. And so I didn't talk about my body or my food openly, mm-hmm. but you know, you can tell that there's stuff I'm not saying, I'm not communicating my feelings because I'm in my food. And so I think when, or I know that when Courtney wound up in the psych unit, Clay and I had what I would say was like the beginning of a, of a huge transition and who we were as individuals, who we were as a couple, and then how ultimately that changed our way of communicating with our kids and our families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, obviously that's been about getting healthy with my own food and my body and using my words and setting up a lifestyle that I actually can show up for holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been amazing. I mean, it's been a total journey, but it's like, I'd say now we have a great life doing what we love to do and we work for ourselves and we have a lot of downtime. We have sort of the excitement that we enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was, it was huge transition getting there. And I think when um, we came out of Courtney was finally stabilized. She ultimately ended up going to treatment when she was 18 for substance abuse as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and had kind of a tumultuous time during that. And Clay mm-hmm. can fill in the details around that if he'd like to, but that was when we had done a lot of changing through Al-Anon, through therapy. Um, we'd been in a lot of therapy groups, not only with Courtney and her brother, Riley, who's a couple years younger, but also Kelly, her mom and her husband, Shane. So we really started to heal the whole family and work together to just be different and start to look at some of our childhood wounds that weren't working anymore because they're showing up in our daughter. And it became clear, like if we Mm -hmm. don't change as adults, she's not going to make it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, out of that came roots. I mean, we healed, you know, we had a lot of healing to do before that, but that was like in 2018, Mm -hmm. I think when we, when we, you know, got trained um, in invitational interventions and started working with families officially. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say for us, you know, just to help the uh, the audience understand, you know, when when Julie says psych unit, the reason that Courtney was there at UCLA in that particular is because you know her eating disorder was so extreme that they were having to feed her on a tube, you know, and I think um, I think that's where for me I got my moment of clarity. Um, is yes, I, I saw obviously that everything was very bad, but growing up in the environment that, that I did and having, a, you know, eating disorder as part of the equation for the females, I had like blinders on it. And then also when it came to Julie, you know, I just didn't see how thin she was. I didn't see how thin Courtney was. Um, and it's a really interesting experience to like pull yourself out of that. And, um, recognize that I've got work to do for myself because this is obvious to 
everybody else around me other than myself. And so I need to take a look at that. And yeah, what, you know, having been in 12 step rooms and, you know, a lot of different experiences, therapeutically speaking, I had a huge blind spot. And so recognizing that uh, was just the first step of, of the journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's where I love to work with families or we love to work with families is because yes, you can have your person of concern or, you know, loved one that's suffering from the illness. There's a lot of different terminology for it, but you know, it's a whole family illness, you know, and it plays out differently for different members, Uh, you know, adult child or, you know, any of the disorder, you know, down along the, the, uh, the mental health challenges, so it just plays out differently, but it, you know, the way that I understand it and have experiences, it's like, it's an illness and it plays out differently for different individuals. And so everybody, everybody needs to get help and support and recognize their, their journey towards health and wellness. And then that will help sustain the individual that's seeking help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll help with resilience against the illness for the individual and the family as a whole. And then, you know, the future generation, because you're yeah. learning different coping yeah. behaviors and supporting each other differently through, you know, joy and challenges, which everyone's going to have, mm-hmm. you know, and talking about them is being comfortable talking about that. I mean, you asked us a question earlier that Clay answered about what were the harder things for him to talk about. And he answered his financial life. And I would say for me, it was obviously my food, you know, and my eating disorder. It's like, I felt so much shame around that. I mean, when we first got together, we were like, I'm perfect. And he's like, I'm perfect too. Yeah. You know, like these things are going to go away. And I'm from Greenwich, Connecticut. It's uh all going to be fantastic. Yeah. And I think, you know, as stress comes in, it's like, if we don't have a different coping skill, you're going to go back to the one that is the most soothing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, that was either, you know, was all around control for my body. And, um, you know, I was really embarrassed about that. And there's something I think for, you know, for women out there, at least, where if you're like smoking cigarettes or you're an alcoholic or you're, you know, abusing drugs, there's sort of a sexy stigma to that. And there's nothing sexy at all about an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think that because of (laughs) that, um, you know, I got really, really good at hiding it. Um, and, you know, much to my own detriment. And then also, you know, Clay couldn't see how thin I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, you know, I think that with, with Courtney being able to start to communicate honestly about like what's going on for me, what's going on for Clay, like kids know something is up, mm-hmm. but unless you talk about it and name it mm-hmm. in a conversation that everyone has access to um, instead of the triangulation and, Oh, I tell clay this, but I tell somebody something different. And then we're going to keep a united front that nothing's wrong. And then kids are like, 
I know something's wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but then the tension that's living now in the household, they start coping with it in the ways that they've seen us cope. Mm -hmm. And when we started to change how we were talking to one another and how, and people had to hold space for us to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we went to couples therapy, not during this period, but before it. And then when we were in, in the treatment settings with Courtney, you know, we're getting therapy as a family. We're having one-on-one conversations with Courtney plays in sessions with their mom, Kelly and Courtney. So all of these opportunities came up to talk about actually what is going on. And I think that gaslighting by omission is a key symptom in a, in a family that's, you know, I don't love the word dysfunctional, but that is not communicating healthily, you know, and then it just gets absorbed through these behaviors that oftentimes can grow into addiction and the illness manifests, um, like Clay said, in different ways for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I do. I think it's all the same at the core. It just comes out in different ways. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, I think it's amazing, like getting the whole family involved. I think that though, it's really hard to find a family who's, who's willing to do that. And, um, but you're so right because I mean, I know what my experience is and I know the experience of so many adult children is that when we start to break away from this dysfunction, and the rest of the family is not doing so, the rest of the system attacks, right? Because that's mm-hmm. threatening the survival as a system. And yeah. I think, um, you know, some of us are able to like prevail through that, but I think a lot of people just get sucked back in, you know? There's no doubt. There, There is no doubt that that happens. Uh, and it's unfortunate. Well, I think it just goes to show how insidious it is, right? Like how uh, insi- like it's some person gets healthy yeah. and the rest of the family is like, I, I did a meme. I had a meme on um on my Instagram. And it was like a girl calling her family, like, "Hey, I just started going to therapy." And the other side was Jeff Probst from Survivor. It was like, "You've been voted off the island." <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's so true. Um, yeah, because the you know it is a very strong component, and in fact, this family system believes that it needs to sustain itself within that activity. For survival, because they're all survival yes. techniques at all costs. They're, they're survival techniques and systems because the goal is to survive from generation to generation. And so uh, what they know and what they're familiar with is the only way they've known how to survive. Mm-hmm. And until uh, some light and some space is created, either for an individual or the entire family system, uh, it's it's you know, a, a low percentage of folks that can recover. And, you know, they do get voted off the island. What, you know, quite often the folks that reach out to us are, are the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a easier way because you're talking about, you know, a child and like, this is what we know from science, you know, from years in the field, uh, from proven models that this is what is the most beneficial 
an opportunity for sustained health, health and wellness and surviving, you know, an illness of substance use disorder or mental health challenges, uh, because those two can end in death, you know, either by their own hand or accidentally. Well, and I think, you know, people call us, we get a phone call when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at its, at, at like the essence of Roots Collaborative, there's, you know, there's, you know, crisis management. So we get a phone call and, you know, somebody's been in their room for years on end because they have, you know, a really debilitating mental health challenge. Then there's other things where it's like, you know, our daughter is cutting or our son is, you know, dropped out of school. I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios that people call crisis. And so when we talk to those families or the person who's who's, you know, the first caller, let's say, you know, our approach is always invitational. Like that's the style that we as interventionists use. And what does that mean? It means that the person of concern knows we're coming. They're invited to that meeting. They probably have a pretty good idea why the meeting's being held because there has been a crisis that they're fully aware of. And in that, at the very beginning of the meeting, we ask as many family members and people who are close to the family who can support recovery come because there is resilience in numbers. And we want everyone to learn a shared language for moving forward. And so the meeting will start out with obviously the, the introduction and how we work. And then we'll talk the about ground rules. Yeah, the ground rules and respect. And then we'll talk about you know, family strengths. We do a family genogram. So that's like a family tree. And the focus isn't necessarily on, on like, oh, they lived on a farm and they were farmers. It's more like, <laughs> you know, where did they come from? What were their coping skills? Were there any, was anyone um, suffering from the illness of alcoholism or drug addiction? Was there gambling? So we try to get a psychographic um, insight into the family so that, everyone can understand that these challenges are Mm multi-generational. And when great-great-grandfather came over from, let's say, Ireland, um, it wasn't safe to talk about your feelings when you landed in Chicago. They didn't want Irish people there. So, you know, to be like, hey, I'm really hurting because I miss my family. (laughs) That would be, you know, a cause for being probably abused by by whoever you're working with. And so people kept things inside. So you can see where those initial coping skills and survival skills, they might have worked in 1920 um, or early late 1800s, but in 2021, 22, 22, uh, they're ineffective. (laughs) You know, they are not working anymore. Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. And so that's where... By the time we turn to the person who's in crisis and say, hey, listen, would you be willing to get some help so that you can learn different tools and you don't have to end up like great, great grandfather. And that person has been telling stories for the last hour, hour and a half alongside their family members. And it becomes a lot safer to say you need help. And then the other part is that we ask the family to also get help. So they're going to, whether it's adult children, if they're going to Al-Anon, 
We ask if they would be willing to stop using substances for a period of time so that everyone's having an honest experience in life. And if they're irritated or happy or upset that those feelings come up naturally and they're not putting a balm on it because we're asking the person of concern to get considerable treatment and honestly face challenges in, in their interior life. And so the family should also understand what that's like. Um, and people are willing to do it for a couple reasons. One, their person's life is on the line. And secondly, we make it palatable. You know, we are very open and we try to be fun and honest and understanding and, um, and then also future generation, right? So if you're, you know, it's like Clay and I, we want our, we want our grandchildren to not have to suffer the way that we did, the way that our parents have, and the way that maybe Courtney had some challenges. And so we put in the work because we want our little people to have a much better time of it. Yeah. Yeah. To thrive and yeah. not have to have some of those same challenges. And yeah, they, I, I think for folks, they, for different reasons, they become invested in, in this process. And then we meet family members where they are, you know, there's no shaming, you know, if somebody isn't able to sustain, you know, sobriety throughout the process of a few months, then, you know, we talk about that. You know, so everything becomes, uh, it's not you get an A, it's, you know, let's talk about why that might be a challenge. You know, uh, because well, I was going to say that there's got to be family members who don't hold up their end of the bargain. Yeah. And they might well, see, and that's, to say whatever they want in the intervention. And so how is that addressed? Well, so it's, it, and so I, I know the word and the term is intervention, but it's really a family meeting Yes, and it's agreed upon goals uh, that everybody commits to. And if they're not able to agree or they want to discuss what that could look like. So it's, it's all open for discussion. It's encouraged for, for you know, everybody to sustain sobriety throughout the press process but we're not going to shame somebody if they're not able to adhere to that. But we're going to talk about like, you know, why do you need to have, you know, two shots in a beer every night, <laughs> you know? Uh, and why are you, you know, have you ever considered maybe that's the fact that you're not able to not have it, that there's something to look at there. You know? Well, and part of the, the initial process um, where we have our first family meeting and we're doing the genogram, by the time we get to the present tense and the people who are in the room, we'll ask people flat out, like, hey, tell us a little bit about your coping. How do you cope with stress and anxiety and things that are going on? And so people are like, by that time, it's just safe to say, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I probably smoke too much pot or I you know, I'm restricted with my food or I'm a workaholic or whatever their coping skills are, it's safe to say. Mm -hmm. And so most people own it. And then if they don't own it in the room, their <laughs> kids are like, oh, well, you know, I mean, you do kind of drink a lot. <laughs> it, you, know, you do have Jack Daniels in the trunk. <laughs> right. So it's like it, they're, they're kind of calling each other out. And then because we're not upset with them, it's like, this is, this is, this is the illness. Mm -hmm. You know, and people are truly doing the best that they can. And and then I think as so once we've got somebody um, 
once we start working with the family and someone either agrees to go to treatment or not, we have family meetings once a week on Zoom mm-hmm. for an hour. And it runs like kind of like a family recovery meeting where everyone gets to check in and say how they're doing, put a topic up for um, discussion at the end of the check-ins, the family decides which topics they want to talk about first. And usually it's pretty obvious. So a lot of times it's boundaries or communication or how can we support so-and-so when they come out of a treatment setting, um, whatever, should we give them an allowance? Uh, when is the right time to for them to look for a job? Um, I'm having a hard time not drinking each week. I mean, there's so many different topics. And then the family really talks about it amongst themselves. Clay and I provide resources and education and insight. uh, But it's amazing how smart families are. You know, they've got a lot of... They're experts in their family. In their family. And we understand recovery. And we also stay in our own lane. So we're not therapists. We, if it becomes apparent that someone's really struggling, that's not the person of concern, you know, we'll ask the family members, like, what do you, what tools do you think, you know, your mom and dad could use? And then usually kids are like, um, therapy. So then we say to mom and dad, because everybody makes recovery commitments each week. So we would maybe say to mom and dad, well, it sounds like your kids think that, therapy would be a good idea for you. Would you be willing this week for your recovery commitment to explore getting a therapist? Mm -hmm. And then usually they'll say, you know, I would be open to that. We'll do that. Or let me think about it. Or great. Do you have any names? Mm -hmm. So it is a fluid process that moves forward. And our experience, at least in working with families is that the healthier the family gets together the less oxygen the illness has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if the person of concern decides not to get sober or get help, typically at some point during our process and helping the family get healthier, Mm -hmm. that person will accept treatment. What was your question? How How young of kids will you involve in these meetings? Is there like a limit? Like, would you have like a six-year-old? We, we leave that up to the family. No, no, we leave that up to the family. You know, some children um, can really benefit. It just depends on on that. We wouldn't have a you know a six-year-old. You know. Well, I think what we do is in in a case like Clay and I had a case where um, it was the dad and they had um, tweens that were twins and they Mm -hmm. tween twins and the young, the, the gal decided that she would say a few words to dad via zoom yeah, and just tell him she loved him and all of that. And that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Um, he was, he was at detox and, and rethinking things and thinking, Oh, I just need a detox. I don't need treatment, but it was clear that he did. Um, and so we circled back around within the, tr- uh, the detox facility and then did a family meeting via Zoom. And yeah, she chimed in for just five minutes. She said, Dad, please take care of yourself. Get, get the help that you need. 
And the son did not participate. And that was his choice. He was off at football. I think he wrote like a little bit. He, of, he yeah, wrote, wrote a wrote little it. letter that so, was super basic. So, and that was, that was the shift, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he did, did go to treatment and he's continued his recovery and the family is, you know, still divorcing, but pretty inspiring the way that the, the two parents are able to collaborate together and prioritize, you know, the cell of the house and the separating of you know finances and all that sort of stuff so and then there was like it's an, really oh. it's a really powerful experience to plug into families where this individual when when we first stepped on scene and it was a little bit of out of the box i didn't know exactly what i was getting into and he was really physically struggling and needed assistance you know, and just rinsing himself off to get in the car to, you know, treatment. And so we do work with folks at a lot of different levels. Uh, You know, it's not one size, you know, fits all, you know, some folks need more support on the, on the long tail, you know, and so more like they go to treatment and then supporting them from their treatment experience uh, into reintegrating into their life. And that can be a huge chasm for folks that have been in a, a supportive, safe environment, a 30, 60 day program, and then they have to reintegrate. And so uh, what we like to do with clients where we're plugged in at that point is to make sure that everything's lined up, like the mm-hmm. therapist, the mm-hmm. intensive outpatient program, already knowing the meetings, like, because that, that individual, they might think they've got this. I've been in treatment, but the the space between exiting treatment and plugging into your support system when you return home, that's a huge chasm. And that's where a lot of relapse happens. That's where, unless you have folks like going to this meeting and that meeting and really plugging into a solid foundation when they return to their, to their home, uh, we, we see a lot of folks fall off there. So we're very um, encouraged when folks are like, yeah, you know, I'm leaving treatment in a week and I've got all these things dialed in. And then they execute on those things. Like, yeah, I've already got my new therapist and did it because it takes all of that, you know, for so many folks to live comfortably in their own skin and recovery has everything to do with feeling comfortable in your own skin. Uh, and so those triggers that we were talking about and, you know, those different aspects of, that could possibly precipitate a relapse, we try to remove those obstacles as, as much as possible uh, and support folks in health and well-being. And the family is a huge part of that. Do you guys do many of these invitational interventions where the, let's say there's been a crisis, that person, I don't want to call them the identified patient, but we'll say so the idea where it's not drugs and alcohol related and it's more mental health related. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do plug in. We, we spend more time on the front end, like trust building quite honestly uh, with the family itself. Mm-hmm. And then quite possibly that individual, if they're in a, in a psychosis uh, it takes time mm-hmm. and we, uh, we are able to work within that uh, specific challenge. It just takes different attention, um, bringing in more team members, whether it's a psych tech um, or, you know, some clinicians uh, to help support the process in a different way. 
So yeah, we just, we do gear up for that. Uh, and we've had success. Yeah. I think it's where, where the difference lies is if you have a challenge with addiction, getting that addiction treated, stabilized is, is identifiable Mm -hmm. when there is a mental health challenge, whether it's depression, bipolar, um, the illness of schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, families have been triaging usually for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the crisis element can oftentimes be harder for them to identify because the, the milestone keeps getting, the markers keep getting moved. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when, when we then, and I, you know, we've had some experiences where we've gone in thinking it would be more of an inter- invitational intervention process with a outcome of said person entering a treatment setting right away or stabilization, stabilization, um, and it didn't go that way. And so from our learning, we have, we asked different questions now. Um, and we, like Clay said, educating the family and trust building with the family is where we start. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes a symptom of, of, of mental health challenges or mental illness is that maybe you don't understand that you have the challenge mm-hmm. quite often. That's yeah. The case. Like, it's and you. This, well, it's when it me. gets, <laughs> and when it gets more extreme, like when we get into schizophrenia, it is, um, you know, one of the number one symptoms is that you don't experience yourself as mentally ill. Mm-hmm. You experience the side effects that are happening to you is quite unpleasant and unfair and unjust. And those things can irritate you, but in terms of delusion and paranoia, those things are absolutely real. And the parents or the family members have had a hard time speaking to that because it's a conundrum. Mm -hmm. It's not logical. And, um, and so that's part of, you know, that's a different sort of set of skills that we have become proficient in. Um, but a lot of it is, I mean, we have a, we have a client that we're working with right now where the crisis is around, um, you know, a parent, an aging parent who has, uh, Alzheimer's and there's some, you know, intervention needed there because this, this parent is being taken advantage of, Mm. um, by an outside force, Mm. someone who wants to move in with them and is starting Mm. to look at taking your money and, So we provide a safe place for these two adult siblings to come together and start healing some of their childhood trauma and having a dialogue because they had been estranged for Mm. a while. Mm, That's beautiful Um, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It takes all different shapes and sizes. And I think that's what we love the most. Well, one of the things that we appreciate most about the work is that when when people refer to us or our phone rings, every case is so unique mm-hmm. and everyone's stories are unique. I mean, one thing about 12 step programs in general is like, there is a tendency to be like, Oh, well, we're all like that. Or we're like this, or we're like that, which I think families do to, 
you mm-hmm. that are unhealthy. And we see like you're, you are you, you are having a unique experience, mm-hmm. um, whether you're in your family or just on your own. And um, we love to learn about that. And there's some things that we know about the illness and these different ways the illness manifests and ways in which you could get help. Uh, well, this has been amazing. I really wish we had bickered more. I wish we had yeah. bickered more. I, I feel like we really covered any of that. Yeah. Well, Start do you fighting. have any questions that Start you can fighting. Ask Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think well, we like should really mo- make yeah, this okay. exciting. Other than I mean, like, have- yeah, so, well, you had your little speeding thing that happened, but I don't know. Uh-huh. What, what has been, like just, the, what's been the I, latest I think- tiff? Tell me the tiff. <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, I guess, I guess, I don't know about tiff, but I would say, you know, we're, we're both uniquely human, you know, Boring. and the, the work. No. Yeah, Give me I something have- good. Give me something no, good. No, no, no. <laughs> something but well, I can tell you. Like, I, I, but I'm just oh, saying. He's like, no, don't no, talk, no, no, Julie. No, 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 Julie, let's hear no, it. No, it's Julie, like, let her speak. Yeah, in, in the work, in the work, and in the twelve step communities, you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. And so, I think we're just, we're just living and and not trying to sugarcoat that. You know, I, I'm not. Sounds like that's what you're doing right now. Not you're, I know. you're really skating. Really? 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 No, yeah, no, I don't want to hear. I know, I don't want her to drop in, but I don't want to hear it. She I do. We weren't fighting enough. Okay, go ahead. Man, well, what a shitster. Gaslighter. Like, what a gaslighter. <laughs> right? What the fuck, dude? <laughs> and there you have it. Clay, yeah. Clay says he Enough said. Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, a, I think that, like, the a couple weeks ago, we got a new, <laughs> a new business call. And I'm talking to this woman and oh, I already heard about this. thinks he knows how to handle <laughs> yeah. the situation better than I do. And so he leaves the room and hops on our therapy session, which has started while we're in the other room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I finish with this woman. I come in the room and he is bitching about me to the, ther- to our therapist that I'm not doing it right. And mm-hmm. I went fucking bananas. <laughs> Rightly so. And so then we had a really awesome conversation about like about how I'm always right about what's going on for him <laughs> when he's here. Me. And then I'm like, I know these things mm-hmm. because I, I talk to the people and he's like, okay, okay. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I did own the fact that I might've jumped the shark on that. You talk to the people, but he reads minds. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have he he doesn't True. even have to talk to the that people he true. knows he just knows I know yeah yeah well, yeah well I, and welcome to being a dude uh huh yeah. sorry sorry well, my, my my beard gives me wisdom you know I just that. need to be in the same yeah yeah mm-hmm. there was well, this woman thank God I don't have a beard I would be depressed me too <laughs> me too I would be really fucking depressed. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be going off that fifth story at the boarding school. I had a fucking beard. That's right. I do have a I do have a hair though that grows out of one of my moles though. So maybe do you? Yeah. yeah. Do you ever catch it like a few days later and you're like, holy shit, it's an inch long? Yeah. Are you on that thing? Yeah. No, I kind of like I like to let it grow out a little bit, you know. An inch, maybe two. I'm barfing. I'm trying to fucking dread (laughs) it. I'm gonna dread it. Yeah, get moldreds. <laughs> moldreds. Do you think that that'll I like? Do you think that'll work? Oh. Uh huh. 
Do you, do you think that like that would be a good thing like on the dating apps if I like tell people that like yeah. my 2022 I, is to grow dreads out of my freckle on my chin? <laughs> I think I think you would definitely get some unique dialogue from that. One of my friends went on a date with somebody from an app and he had Tourette's started going off while they were um, in the middle of their date. And she was like, oh. And then he's like, oh, sorry, I should have mentioned I have Tourette's. She's like, that's actually like a pretty good thing to let me know before we go out <laughs> to a restaurant on our first date. Well, that's like when I showed up on a date, first date and the guy didn't tell me that he was seven foot one. Like, don't you think you should tell somebody that before you show up? <laughs> seven foot one, that's huge. But you're tall. I know, I'm, that's, that's not comparable. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's like, should you tell someone that you're you know, a recovering alcoholic. And like, he probably is like, well, why wouldn't you tell me that before you... Before I order a, a $50 bottle of wine? Yeah, and drink it myself. Uh, and I then would. get appropriate things. Yeah, whatever. I think it's a little yeah. different. <laughs> <laughs> Says you. Yeah. yeah, no, seven foot one. I was like, wow, okay. That's big. That is very tall. That Well, you got an opportunity to feel petite. I did. Yes. The first time in my fucking life. <laughs> yeah, well, we're the same height, so I got you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so where can people find you? On the web? On the World Wide Web? World Wide Web at rootscollaborative.com or you can call us, 310-625-2369 is me. Mm-hmm. You can find me at Gold's Gym. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm the guy with, like, no T-shirt on and spandex shorts. Mm. And, I don't think you've bench, ever been. He's never bench, been in a gym bench in pressing life. 250 pounds. Clay's phone number is? Yeah, do you mean the gold club? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Gold club for white-haired dudes. Yeah, um, Yeah. my number is 310-936-1223. I remember how you were saying you don't get a lot of phone calls from people that you don't want to hear from. Do uh-huh. you think that we'll get phone calls by saying that? I hope so. I hope you get some fucking really yeah. weird calls. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, we will. You probably will. Please, Do people give people, out their phone number? Text them nudes. Text them nudes. <laughs> oh my Send god! Them well, some that... dick pics. Send Clay uh, some dick pics. Yeah. Yeah, Clay. <laughs> well, he right. is working out at Gold, yeah, so yeah. I mean, there, there you go. All oh, right. Well, this is god. lovely. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's been you. today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you. And as always, I know that you did. Go check out Julian Clay's stuff. Uh, I definitely want to have them back on the podcast. And please, too, if you guys ever have guests that you like, that you have questions, like follow-up questions based off the interview that you would want me to ask them, please don't hesitate to to reach out. Um, and I guess that's it. Go go down the join Patreon. Now, if you are still listening to this, you're listening this far into the episode at the very end, and you still haven't joined Patreon, you need to join Patreon, okay? Go fucking do it. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. Please hit a girl up. I love hearing from you. I try my best to respond to each and every person. Um, and yeah, I will see you shit shows next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child 
It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Don't let it all go.